Drapes. Guess where we are? We're on my bed. I have a bed and a desk with a little abstract chair and a dresser and a storage cabinet. Oh, it's so great. Hedonism came and showed me how to have a bed and we went to her girlfriend's bar and we went and got you a story and... Okay. Okay, wait, let me go back. Okay, so I was walking home from work and I got home and I opened my door and boom, there was a lady standing in my room. So I'm just standing there in the doorway, looking at this lady who's dressed like a sharp-toothed shepherd with ram's horns. So I freeze in the door and stare at her, and she's just like, Hi, I noticed you haven't been sleeping or eating or having fun. And when she talked, her mouth got bigger and bigger until it took up her whole face. I don't have a bed, I said. Yes, you do, she said. You do have a bed, but you haven't been sleeping in it at all. But I really don't have a bed, I said. And her mouth got all big again. You really do, Simon. And I was like, okay. And she was like, we're going to have fun now. Just because we're in hell doesn't mean you have to be miserable. And I said, what? And then she was walking at me with her little clicky shepherd shoes. And then she grabbed my hand. And when she grabbed me, her hand got bigger and bigger. And her grip got tighter and tighter until there was no way I could ever let go. And then she showed me all over the place. At first, I was trying to be mad about it because this eldritch beast broke into my house and was dragging me everywhere, but then she stopped and said hi to the grocer, and they talked a bunch in Latin, and the grocery lady loves her. And then we were walking, and she stopped to introduce me to this person that was a tiny gold beetle, and we said hello to them, and then she started running, and she pulled me down three alleys. There was a swishing noise, bouncing off the walls, and we turned a corner, and the world was darkness and the sparkle of glowing fish. It was a whole school of koi fish swimming right through the air, throwing off sparks like bubbles. I looked around and realized that the whole street was a lantern-lit open market, and everyone was still and silent, and everyone had stopped whatever they were doing just to watch these fish. And the fish kept coming and coming, and then... And then this one guy started whistling and cheering for them in a language I've never even heard before. And then everyone was cheering. Everyone was cheering and the fish started swimming faster and faster and their scales sparkled brighter and brighter until they were so bright that the world got pitch black around them and I could have swore we were watching every star in the sky fall down and shoot past us. And then they were gone. And everyone fell silent again. For a second, I thought I might cry, and then I felt like maybe everybody else might cry too, and the air got too heavy to breathe. And then the lady holding my hand, hedonism, she started laughing, sweet and silly and loud, and it was like a balloon popped. All the sound came back, and suddenly everyone was laughing and talking and going back to whatever they were doing, and somebody started playing music, and some people started dancing, and everyone seemed delighted. Happy in a reverent way, almost. Then Hedonism, the lady, got me a licorice rope, and I don't really do candy, but it was still really nice of her. And then we looked at everything in the market. Everything. She got excited over all of it. Well, she didn't really smile 
But if she was looking, her eyes would get bigger and bigger until they took up her whole face. And when she smelled something, her nose would. And if something she touched was soft, her fingers would get longer and longer until her hand could swallow whatever she was holding. She was swelling, shifting, and shuffling so fast that she looked like a high-speed rubber hose cartoon. And hedonism, she talked to everybody like they were old friends, and everyone loves her. Oh, and she explained how money works. Okay, so it's super weird, but apparently money sort of doesn't work. You can find any raw material in hell just by looking for it. So if you search hard enough, it'll just turn up. And apparently money counts as a raw material, so you can find money just by looking for it. However, nobody really uses it. We're supposed to. Apparently God decided that this is hell, and we have to suffer, so we need to have an economy, but in general, no one needs anything to live. You get a house when you show up, and you don't have to sleep or eat or drink water, like, we're dead. In hell. It's not like you're gonna die. And on top of that, the money doesn't make any sense. It looks like little crested gears and buttons and teeth, and no one understands the denominations. Hedonism said it's not necessarily supposed to be understood. Anyway, Hedonism was eating licorice, and you know, her mouth and her teeth were like huge, and she was still holding my hand really tight, and she was explaining money to me, and I was like, why does anyone work then? Like, I work because I'm Surrender's demon and I have to, but why is everyone else working? And then she looked at me, and then she looked around the whole market, and her ears swelled and dipped with the music. And she said, Because they can. Because humans create and build and improve their world the same way they breathe. It's a compulsion, Simon. A beautiful compulsion. I pity you, darling, she said. Because people sang and danced and painted and built and grew and raised and loved and killed long before your society was born, and they will continue long after your society falls. If you trap humans in hell, they'll find a way to paint the walls, Simon. You'll come back to check on their suffering, and you'll find they've exchanged pie recipes and fallen in love and made wine in the toilets. Even if you didn't give them toilets, they will have made their own toilets, and then they will have made wine. Your kind will paint with their own blood if they have to. It doesn't matter. The walls will get painted and the paintings will be beautiful. Sweetheart, you're looking at a wooden statue and assuming it grew its own forest, but you have it backwards. Humans invented the economy just like they invented so many other things. The compulsion to create runs deeper and quicker through your heart than the spare change you so easily left behind in death. And I wasn't sure what to say to that. But my silence was okay, I think. And then she took me to her girlfriend's bar. That's where I got your story for tonight. Uh, her name is Hedonism, and her girlfriend's name is Pride, and Pride owns a bar. Hedonism and Pride aren't demons like me, they're devils. But they aren't part of the Congress of Devils, because that's just the five head devils and Lucy. So Pride and Hedonism are more like retired devils, or sort of little devils. They're about the same size as me, they aren't like fate or surrender or even embarrassment. Their littler fears. Anyway, Pride's Bar was massive and old and full of books and music and incredibly drunk eldritch beasts. I didn't get to meet Pride, but Hedonism told me about her and her heart got bigger and bigger until it looked like it was swelling out of her chest. We got to the bar and we sat down underneath some chalkboards and the bartender was an octopus. Not like 
a cartoon octopus. Either the bartender was a proper, massive octopus with a newspaper hat. And then Hedonism asked the octopus if they had the thing, and I was like, cool. This lady still got my hand really tight, and she's dragged me to a bar, and we're about to do demon cocaine or something. And I don't do drugs either, you know? She was nice, but I was sort of freaked out at this point. And then the octopus hands Hedonism an old-fashioned sardines tin, and I was like, cool, hell drugs in an old-fashioned sardines tin. Fancy. And then Hedonism hands me the tin and says, it's for your jar. And I asked what it was, because I was still pretty sure it was drugs. And she said, it's a story. Lemon Tree told me you have a soul in a jar, and she heard you telling it a story about an owl. And I said, who told you that? Someone called Lemon Tree? And she said, yes, Lemon. You must have met her because she met you. She's Lucy's little human girl. The faceless one. And I was like, I don't think I met a faceless girl. I feel like I would have remembered that. And then Hedonism said, she's mostly hair. Long, dark, curly hair, and 600 barrettes. And then I was like, oh shoot, yeah, of course, the kid with the missing friend. I didn't know her name was Lemon Tree. And then I was like, was she the one who told you I wasn't sleeping or having fun? And then... <laughs> And then Hedonism was like, no, your vibes were so rancid I sensed them remotely and decided to help you. And, like, my days. I've been dragged, but she's an immortal being. An ageless devil took me to a bar because my vibes were rancid. Like, mmm. Anyway, the tin has a little story in it. Hedonism told me that if I peel up the lid and take a deep breath, the story will sort of tell itself. Listen, it's not drugs if I'm snorting a book, okay? It's gonna be great. You ready? <sighs> this is a sardine can recording. All sardine can recordings are in the public domain of specifically and only hell. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit Isolation's Story Pantry. Ten years ago, two kids walked into the woods at night. Ten years ago, the wind sounded like crickets and smelled like a river. Ten years ago, it was raining. They'd hoped it wouldn't rain, but if you were running away from home with your best friend and you'd spent all that time planning, well, you had to be a man about some rain. Jonathan remembered he had a frog umbrella with little green eyes sticking out the top of it, and he'd brought that. David had brought a map of their state. He'd always been the practical one. Now David was driving over the Seattle overpass while Jonathan rode shotgun. Jonathan watched the windshield wipers struggle to fight the rain. It was nighttime, but it was a vastly different nighttime than the one in the woods. This nighttime smelled like gasoline and sounded like a traffic jam. A semi passed, and its splash almost drowned out the barely there Billie Eilish song on the radio, I love you, I love you, and I don't want to. Neither of them said a word. Ten years ago, two kids walked into the woods at night, and they were both insane. For Jonathan, it started with the faces. He couldn't remember a time before the faces. They were shadows in the corners of his vision, but when he turned to look, they'd always stay. Toothy sneer, soundless laugh, and then they'd vanish. David wasn't quite insane. Not really. But he'd invent stories about falling into hell itself and exactly what it would feel like to be on fire. He'd stop the story to describe the feeling in detail, and then he'd look at Jonathan out of the corner of his eye right at the end, just to see if Jonathan was concerned. Jonathan was always concerned about something. He'd acted unconcerned about college. 
He'd acted unconcerned about moving away from his childhood best friend, and he'd acted unconcerned about classes, and he'd acted unconcerned about working two jobs. But he had been very concerned. Jonathan listened to the twin thrumming of the rain and the heater and tried to drown out the concern. Ten years ago, two kids walked into the woods, and they were holding hands like that was okay. They were holding hands like they could. Like it didn't matter. Ten years ago, two kids walked into the woods at night looking for an angel. Ten years ago, Jonathan believed in God. He prayed and prayed and prayed, and he knew an angel was coming to rescue him and David. He knew. The angel would be terrifying, but he would take them to a big house in the clouds, and the angel's name was Gilboa. Jonathan was positive that Gilboa was real. There were signs. He had stopped seeing the faces. He had stopped seeing the faces' faces. And he kept seeing blue everywhere. Everything was blue, blue. And his Sunday school teacher kept talking about angels coming for all of them. And Jonathan told David all of it, even the part about the signs and the faces and the blue. And he looked out of the corner of his eye to see if David was concerned. David did seem a little concerned, but only a little. A little. So they made a plan to run away and meet Gilboa. Ten years ago. Two kids walked into the woods, and they were holding hands like that was okay. One had a mostly empty backpack and a froggy umbrella, and the other had a BB gun and a map of Washington. Neither of them had shoes that fit, and it was raining hard. It was dark. Ten years ago, two kids walked into the woods, and it was dark, and they didn't have a flashlight, but Jonathan could feel Gilboa. He could feel him pulling and pulling and pulling. He could close his eyes and stretch out his arms, and he knew which way to go. They talked about how warm the house in the clouds would be. They talked about how much food would be there. They laughed and they promised they'd share a room, even though the house would have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of rooms. Share a room like they could. Like that was okay. Ten years ago, two kids walked into the woods, and they kept walking until the rain stopped. They walked until the sky turned deep blue and then bluer, and ten years ago, two kids crossed a river in mesh sneakers that didn't fit them. Ten years ago, two kids walked until they couldn't feel their toes. They didn't stop. They didn't rest. Jonathan could feel Gilboa pulling them forward. Ten years ago, two kids. Two kids. Two kids ten years ago. Ten years ago, two kids followed that pole. They followed that certainty up a little mountain and over spiky ferns and under a massive log. Ten years ago, ten years ago, two kids ten years ago, Jonathan felt like his blood was getting pulled up the mountain without the rest of him. He felt hot and spinny in his head and cold in his feet, and they had to keep going faster, 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 or he was sure all of his blood would come out of his eyes and nose and ears and race up the mountain without him. He imagined it in detail. It made him want to cry. They ran. Ten years ago, they ran blindly up a mountain, and ten years ago, ten years ago, David grabbed Jonathan by the strap of his backpack and pulled him backwards into the ground, and Jonathan yelled at David for pulling him over. He was actually bleeding now, he was pretty sure he wasn't bleeding. And ten years ago, David yelled back, there was a cliff there, Johnny, there was a cliff there, and you almost ran off of it because you weren't paying attention. Ten years ago, David said he was tired, and he wasn't actually sure if Gilboa was real anymore, and no, he wasn't crying because he wasn't a pussy. Don't say bad words. I'll say whatever the fuck I want, Jonathan. Ten years ago, Jonathan dropped his umbrella and brushed the mossy dirt off the seat of his pants. Ten years ago, two kids. Ten years ago, he walked up to the cliff and looked over the edge of it. Ten years later, and far away from the cliff... Jonathan acted unconcerned about college and moving and classes and working two jobs, but he kept repeating things in his head, repeating things in his head, in his head, repeating them until he couldn't hear when people were talking to him, until he couldn't read, until he couldn't sleep. He almost lost his job. 
he stopped going to classes. Ten years after walking into the woods, Jonathan found himself lying flat on the floor of his dorm's bathroom, sobbing his eyes out. He hadn't slept in days, so he was seeing things for the first time in ten years. He would see a shadow out of the corner of his eye, and then he would turn, and the shadow would still be there, full 3D, grinning back at him. And then his ears would fill with laughter. So he was sobbing on the bathroom floor, terrified to turn his head. He was terrified of seeing a shadow out of the corner of his eye and having to chase it back to its source. Terrified of the laughter, the vanishing. They made him want to throw himself over the edge of a cliff. His roommate noticed or heard him crying or something equally humiliating, and when he peeled himself off the floor, someone with a name tag said he had to go home or check into a hospital. So he tried not to cry while he shoved everything he owned into the beat-up backpack and sat on the curb and called his mom, even though she didn't have a dime in her pocket or a driver's license. She'd sent David. She hadn't told Jonathan that part of the plan. David had just showed up in his 90s Volvo and slapped his door like everything was fine, and neither of them said a word until they were halfway out of Seattle. It was raining, it was raining, it was raining, but the Volvo was warm. David turned off the radio. Am I taking you back to your mom's? Yeah. David stopped at a yellow and silently watched it blink to red. Listen, Jonathan, this might be stupid, but you shouldn't go back there. To your mom's. He took a deep breath. All I'm saying is you can come cry on my bathroom floor if you want. My apartment might be a shitty studio, but I won't call the RA and get you kicked out. Mom told you? Yeah, I'm sorry. That she told you? That it happened. I don't think you want me in your apartment, David. I'm a train wreck. Train wreck. Train wreck. <sighs> David laughed. Shit. I'm a train wreck, too, I swear. I... Jesus. Sometimes I do something, like text one of my friends at 1am while watching YouTube in bed, and I think... I'm texting one of my friends at 1am while watching YouTube in bed, and I feel like a teenager for the first time in my goddamn life, and it feels sacred as shit. It feels the way religion's supposed to. I'm almost 20, and all my friends are coming out as gay and trans and dyeing their hair and getting their ears pierced, and everybody's texting each other at 1am while watching YouTube in bed, and they're talking about happy things instead of about committing suicide, and... Christ. I could carve an altar out of that feeling. This is the first time in my life I haven't wanted to light myself on fire just to feel the burn of it, and and I just... We could share a room, is all. I can't go back and rescue either of us from a thing, but we're still us, and we could be happy now. And if you're not happy, you can cry on my bathroom floor, is all I'm trying to say. You could cry wherever you wanted, Scout's Honor. Jonathan laughed like he was heartbroken, but he didn't cry. As a rule, he really did try to be a man about things. Ten years ago, ten years ago, ten years ago, the cliff Jonathan looked over was deep and jagged and slippery. He could still feel the pull. He could still feel his blood pooling and boiling and promising to slip out his eyes and leave him behind. He could feel Goboa terrifying as ever, calling him to jump, telling him it was death by jumping or death by pulling, death by his blood streaming over the edge without him. He imagined both deaths in detail and they made him want to cry. He imagined the house in the clouds. Ten years ago, Jonathan was standing on the edge of a cliff with his arms wrapped around himself and he could feel himself crying because he was always crying, crying. He's still pulling, David. He's still pulling. He's still pulling and I have to. He turned and he couldn't see David. He couldn't see a thing. He couldn't feel his feet and all his blood was rushing, rushing, rushing in his head. He couldn't tell if he was swaying or if he was already falling or if he was a stone fastened forever to the cliff. All he could feel was the pull. I have to, David. I have to. I have to or I'll die. I have to. I have to. I have to. He couldn't see a thing. 
He couldn't see a thing, and he was standing on the edge of Gilboa's cliff, and there was a pole, and then he heard yelling, and suddenly he was falling, and he could feel that. He hurt the ground and heard his wrist snap. Then he opened his eyes and felt it all at once. The world twisted and spun, and he was lying on the ground down the hill, far away from the cliff, and David was running down towards him, chanting, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Are you okay? Jesus Christ, I'm sorry I pulled you down, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to hurt you, but you look like you were gonna jump. Jesus Christ, is your wrist okay? Ten years ago, Jonathan looked down and realized he was cradling his wrist, and then realized that his wrist hurt, and then realized that he had almost just died. Gilboa wasn't real. Ten years ago, Jonathan started sobbing because Gilboa wasn't real, wasn't real, and they would have to go back to their homes instead of a house made of clouds, and because every little piece of hope he'd kept locked up inside of him died all at once. Ten years ago, David hugged him so hard he couldn't breathe, like it was okay. And David might have cried too, but he didn't call himself a pussy, and he certainly didn't call Jonathan one. Ten years ago, two kids followed a half-ruined map of Washington back out of the woods. Ten years ago, Jonathan broke his wrist, but he didn't die. And ten years later, two kids in a 90s Volvo drove into a town surrounded by forest. The sky was dark, and the wind sounded like crickets and smelled like a river. One of the kids had a backpack with everything he owned in it, and the other had a key to a studio apartment because he was a practical one. And they held hands again. And it was okay. Okay. I'm good. I'm good. <clears throat> My days. Alright, well, that was the story, I think. It sort of possessed me and then told us both the story, but overall, 10 out of 10 experience. <sighs> I'm so happy I have a bed. Hedonism ended up taking me back here and showing me how to have a bed. If you open the drawers on the walls while intentionally looking for a bed, you find a bed, and... God, I found more than just a bed. It's a nest of pillows and purple blankets and... goodness. Yeah. I'm happy I have someone to talk to about all this, and thank you, Grapes. Thank you for listening to me. I'm... gonna go to sleep, and... we'll dream together, okay? I hope you dream about koi fish. Good night, grapes.